have any irrational and entirely ridiculous fears. Uh, could you point to one? Can you think of one? Some of you are smiling. I think you've got one in mind, but I do. Let me volunteer one. Uh, moths. Uh, moths. Um, you can tell uh, with that picture. If a moth comes anywhere near me, I'm like a caffeinated rave dancer on ice. It just tra completely transforms my behavior, and it is entirely irrational. I mean, it is an insect. Uh, on average, I am 38.75 times bigger than those things, and it is ridiculous because what actually can a moth do to me? Uh, BBC News has never reported any death from someone inhaling the powdery dust from their hairy backs. That's never happened. It is an entirely inordinate, irrational, entirely ridiculous fear. I bet you'll have one. Why then do I let it control my behavior? That's the question. Well, that's what fears do. Fears have a controlling impact on our lives. And as Christians, we have our own irrational, ridiculous fear, and it's called the fear of man. The fear of man. What is the fear of man? Well, it's not a phobia as such, uh, but it is, I suppose, a type of anxiety. Here's a definition for you. The fear of man is when a person is so influenced by what other people may think about them, say about them, or do to them, that it shapes their behavior, or even controls their behavior. And as a result, what we do is we give other people control over or sway over our everyday choices and attitudes. But that's a problem, because as we know as Christians, that's God's exclusive right. He's the one who's in control. He's the one who ought to hold sway in every single aspect of our lives. We're meant to fear God. Ecclesiastes 12, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. The fear of God is meant to shape our behavior. God-fearers can take Psalm 118, verse 6, and make it our own. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? But the fear of man is a big problem. It causes us to sin and it frustrates the spread of the gospel. For if we fear man more than we fear God, we will not speak up and speak out in the making of disciples. And that is Jesus' concern as he addresses his disciples in Luke 12. That's what this teaching in Luke 12 intends to correct. Now, we've just jumped right in. Let me give you the context so you understand. Immediately before this passage, Jesus has just drawn the Pharisees' fire. He had accepted an invitation to a Pharisee's house for dinner, but he gave his judgmental host a divine dressing down, seven, seven woes, seven warnings, and then left before the starter was even served. How rude. But as a result, the fierce opposition, as you see in chapter 11, verse 53 and 54, the Pharisees and teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions. They were going to try and trap him and have him killed. And they're a powerful bunch. 
And Jesus' followers know this. Jesus' disciples know this. Those who have chosen to associate with him, they know this. It had to. It had to have surprised them and shocked them, maybe even frightened them a bit to see the reaction of the Pharisees to Jesus and the ferocity of their questions. I mean, what, what, how would that sound like to a disciple? Hang on a minute. You guys, Pharisees, are looking for the Messiah. This guy here we already know from Luke chapter 9 has said he is the Messiah. One plus one. But no. No. Their fierce opposition will rise, even to the point of having Jesus killed. So Jesus draws his disciples aside to teach them this vital lesson that's going to be very important for the furtherance of this mission. And it's this, dead simple. Fear God, not man. It's that simple. Fear God, not man. And I've got three things I want to say tonight. First of all, fear God, not man. Not man. That's point one, verses one to seven. Now Jesus gives us a couple of reasons why in these verses. Firstly, fear God because of what God can say about you. This is uncomfortable reading. I mean, our behavior is often shaped by the fear of what people might say about us. Uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle of Sherlock Holmes fame demonstrated this once in one of his more playful moods. He sent a telegram to 12 friends, all men of power and influence, and uh, the message read, flee at once, all is discovered. And within 24 hours, 12 had left the country. Now that's what people who fear even some form of partial disclosure will do. Imagine the impact of the open disclosure of everything you've ever said or everything you've ever done. Wowzers. What a thought. I'd be worried enough about what you saw from yesterday. Never mind my entire life. But no, let your behavior, this is the point that Jesus is trying to make, let your behavior be shaped by this, not by what people might say about you, but by what God will say about you. Verse two, there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you have whispered in the ear and in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. Wow, that is the ultimate use of the Freedom of Information Act, isn't it? The things we've done behind closed doors, the things we've whispered behind whispering hands, fully known to God, fully disclosed by God on judgment day, nothing's off the record. Wowzers. What a thought. Why is he telling us this? Why is Jesus telling people who are following him this? This isn't just out to the crowds, watch out everybody so you'll believe. These are to people who are saying they believe. Well, why? It's meant to make us fearless before men and appropriately fearful of God. The fear of man will make you every man's puppet. But the fear of God won't. It will make you courageous. Now, that is one of the ways that he's helping us to choose the right thing when tempted to be a false thing, like the hypocrites, like those Pharisees. This warning, this 
warning of open disclosure. It's meant to make you genuinely you in private and genuinely you in public. Now, compared to what people might say about us, what does the prospect of what God can say about us say about the fear of man? It's one of those irrational and entirely ridiculous fears. It doesn't feel that way. I know that. You know that. But compare the two. What man can say about us that can harm us, what God can say about us and reveal about us, there's no comparison. The second reason why we should fear God, not man, is because of what God can do to you. That's what Jesus goes on to highlight. I mean, our behavior is not only shaped by the fear of what people might say about us, but about the fear of what people might do to us. Now, that threat looks different from place to place. In Edinburgh, people will probably mock you or ostracize you. You might be rejected by your family. You might not get a job or whatever. But in places like North Korea or parts of Nigeria, police will imprison you. People will kill you for what you believe. Now, verse 4 hints very strongly at the prospect of facing angst, maybe like the fierce anger of the Pharisees, for being a believer. Verse 4 says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body now. That's pretty straight talking. Uh, that'll induce fear, won't it? We're very self-protective people. Uh, and that's enough to stop a fearful disciple speaking out about Jesus and snuff out the spreading flame of the gospel. But Jesus invites us to put man beside God and compare what each can do to you. And this is what he says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. Okay, that's what man can do. And after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Wow. Strong words again. But go with the comparison that Jesus is making, which is worth death or eternal death? Who can inflict greater pain or punishment, man or God? The answer to Jesus is so straightforward that he goes on to say, yes, I tell you, fear him, God, not man. So compared to what men can do to us, what is the prospect of what God can do to us say about our fear of man? It's one of those irrational and entirely ridiculous fears. Oh, it doesn't feel that way to me, and it doesn't feel that way to you. But go with Jesus' logic, and it's really pretty clear. So let me ask you, do you fear God? Do we fear God? Not in that timid, terrified kind of way, like when you're scared of something, you run frantically from it. That's not the kind of fear that we're talking about. The fear that we talk about in the Bible, of course, is a reverential fear. Like God is terrifyingly worthy of our adoration. 
frighteningly approachable. It reminds me of the scene in the Chronicles of Narnia where Lucy's talking to Mr. Beaver about meeting Aslan when all of a sudden she's surprised to find out that Aslan's not a human being but a lion. Now that's scary for her. And she asks Mr. Beaver, is he safe? And Beaver says, safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. That captures something for us of what we're reminded of in this passage. That even though God is to be feared, we're not to be afraid of him. Actually, one of the reasons for that is because of what we're worth to him. That's what we see in verses 6 and 7 in this chat about sparrows. Now, sparrows were of worth. Sparrows are of worth to God's. Now, sparrows back then were the poor person's meat. I mean, if you went to Lidl or Tesco or something, there's always a deal on two for one on sparrows because they're just cheap meat. And the point is, they're hardly worth a thing. The supermarkets are trying to get rid of them. But they're still, they're hardly worth a thing to these people back then, but they're worth something to God's. And then he says, don't be afraid, you're worth more than many sparrows. In other words, underlining our worth. How much more valued are those made in the image of God and redeemed for his glory and mission? God's children are of such worth to him that if a hair falls out, it's deducted from the log of the total. It's beautiful. What a tender word to his people in the midst of the prospect of what God can say about us, everything undisclosed, and what God can do to us, he could throw people into hell. What a precious reminder for us as we are tempted to fear God and shrink back from him to remember just how much he's a father to us. And so we approach him appropriately. Do not be afraid, Jesus says. Do you fear God in that way? Is God like some big buddy in the sky? No, he's not. That's irreverent. Is he someone that's so intensely holy? Yes. Is he so intensely holy that you should never go near him? No, you should in the right terms with humility and with deep appreciation for all the things he's done to make that possible. Namely, the sending of his son for the forgiveness of your sins. The punishment of his son on that cross and that wrath-absorbing death, that wrath that was due for us. That's what it means to come appropriately. I wonder if it even surprises you a little bit to hear Jesus speak about God's warnings in this way. Well, I mean, don't be. It's, it's quite common to read passages like this in the scriptures, even from the lips of Jesus. And there's good reason for it. I mean, God warns believers like us of dire things to help us see things in our world in the right perspective and to help us choose rightly. You see, the function of fear in this instance is to wake us up to the irrationality of choosing the wrong thing. Now, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, let me ask you the same question I asked everybody else a minute ago. Do you fear God? Who is he to you? 
This passage tells you one of the reasons why you ought to and why that fear ought to shape how you respond and how you behave. I mean, it speaks of what happens when you die. Everyone has to give an account and it speaks of what happens after that that some will go to hell. Now, this account giving is a scarier prospect really for the person who does not follow Jesus in this life. Not, not because they're any less sinful than we are. We, I mean, I'm as sinful as the next person. But on that day, having given an account of everything that's been disclosed, my only hope, the only hope of any Christian is to point to Jesus and say, he is my righteousness, he paid the price. If you've not believed in Jesus and turned from your sins in this life, you don't have that point. You can't do that. That's why deciding on who he is is so important on a night like this or at a time like this because the promise that's held out is that no one who refuses Jesus' offer of forgiveness can have the hope of anything but hell. I say that carefully, but I say it because it's there in black and white. The warning is there. But hell itself is avoided because Jesus paid the penalty for the sin that would have sent people like me, a Christian, there. That's why I, that's why we call him Savior. He saves us from that hell, and he can save you too if you will believe in him for yourself. You don't have to scrub yourself up. You don't have to try harder to be a better person before you can be acceptable to him. You can't do that. None of us could. The glory of the gospel is that he invites us to come now just as we are and say, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I need your forgiveness. End of. And you'll find it. Talk to us about it afterwards if you like. Uh, there's a prayer team down the front. They'd be happy to talk to you about it and pray about this. And uh, I've got a couple of New Testaments that I'd like to give you away if you want to read about this a little bit more. But the encouragement in this first and slightly longer point than the other two, by the way, is fear God, not man. Fear God, not man. Now, what difference will this make to us? That's, that's the whole point of this. This is why Jesus is teaching this to disciples. Whom then having compared and contrasted the fear of man, the fear of God, whom then shall we choose to fear in the days ahead? What difference will this make when the opportunity to identify with Jesus is right there in front of us? And let's get very practical about it. What difference should it make to me in the barbers when the man asking, cutting my hair, asks, what do you do? This is a real life scenario. I was at the barbers a couple of weeks ago and the lady who cuts my hair no longer works there so I had a new guy cut my hair for the first time and he asked me, what do you do? And in that moment, fear rushes on me. Irrational and entirely ludicrous fear. I want this guy, for some reason, to like me. For some reason. So this is why it's irrational. It makes no difference, does it? I don't like the thought of what he could do, actually, to the back of my hair if he doesn't like me without me knowing, but that's besides the point. I, but as I talk about, so I have this little kind of thing where I imagine myself in the future and I say, yeah, I'm a minister of Jesus. 
and I teach the Bible to the people God has given me to love. And you remember those, you know those scenes in movies where you get like the scratch and record thing, and then everybody turns and looks. That's my fear. That's what I think is going to happen. Irrational, ridiculous. But tucked in amongst that is the very obvious thing that I'm pretty sure all of you have experienced in some scenario as well. It's reluctance. Ultimately, there's a reluctance or a shame in speaking about Jesus and being open and honest about it. You ever experienced that? You ever have that kind of fear rush on you? When you've got that scenario in front of you of the two options, what's, what are you gonna do, what are you gonna do? Well, that's right. I mean, we have a choice in those moments. I had a choice in that moment. And the options are really laid out for me really in verses eight and nine. Publicly acknowledge Jesus or publicly disown him. Fear God or fear man. Now, this is important because Jesus gives us another reason to fear God. He teaches us this principle in this passage of corresponding acknowledgement. If you look at verse eight, you acknowledge me before men, I acknowledge you before angels. Before heaven. You disown me before men, I disown you before others. Now, let me be clear about this. To disown someone is stronger than denying someone, of course. Peter denied Jesus three times. In his heart, he was not disowning him. Nevertheless, we'd be silly to think that ongoing denials don't lead to disownment of Jesus. What makes, what a difference it makes, though, when you, again, compare the consequences of acknowledgement or disownment of Jesus. Again, it's the difference between heaven and hell. It's the difference between hearing him say to you, away from me, you evildoer, I never knew you, and well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share your master's joy. Wow. Now, no one does this acknowledging perfectly. No one does. That's why we have the promise of forgiveness that's noted there in verse 10. Since everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, even by not speaking about him, will be forgiven. That's every disciple, that is every believer. Jesus' blood covers even our lack of acknowledgement, even our shame in those points. Forgiveness, though, as Jesus says here, is withheld specifically for the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, as he says, which is basically a way of taking the Spirit's work, the Spirit's very obvious work, and attributing it to Satan, the enemy of God's. But the first is far more likely in us than the second, isn't it? Isn't it? We're much more likely to deny him in some small way in some individual scenario than we are to say, oh, that thing that you're doing there, that's clearly Satan's work. But there are plenty of times when we do things like I did and try to avoid the barber's questions. I've done it before. What do you do? Uh, I'm a teacher, kind of. Um, oh, what do you teach? Uh, people? Um, and there's just nowhere to go. And you feel shame for it. But true Christianity 
is fearless before man's judgment because true Christianity has a healthy fear of the Lord and a healthy love. I mean, why act like he's not mine and I'm not his, given the acknowledgement that he's made and will make of people like us who believe? And since he loves us as he does, what on earth does it matter what the barber or the entire shop thinks of me? It's one of those irrational and entirely ridiculous fears, isn't it? But when you fear God, not man, you delight to associate with the one you love and to love your neighbor by speaking unapologetically about the one that they really need to hear about. They don't need to hear about you. Who cares about you? They need to hear about Jesus and we're withholding him. So on those occasions, you can say what you want to say as blatant and as upfront as you want to be about Jesus. For you love him and you fear him. As I said, everybody finds this hard in some way, but whom shall you fear, man or gods? Compare the two. But what encouragement do we have in this passage to end? This is the third point. We have great encouragement in verses 11 and 12 to fear God and let him shape our behavior. The truth is we're helped by him to fear him and not man. We're helped by the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Now verse 11 again anticipates trial. It anticipates fear rising up in us. When you're brought before the authorities, the, uh, before the synagogues, rulers and authorities, ah, well, what, what would the scenario be today? I don't know, if you're called into a GMC or the Nursing and Midwifery Council because you won't administer a certain drug. If you're hauled before your boss for your talk at lunch. If you're brought before the student union and told to disinvite your speakers. Or even if you're sitting in a chair in a courtroom of your barber shop with another 12 presiding judges, you will probably experience the fear of man. You'll probably feel ill-prepared for what you're going to say. But the point that Jesus makes here is don't worry. Don't be afraid. You not only fear God, you trust God. You have a knowledge and an understanding of who he is, so trust him. As he says in verse 11, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you, teach you at that time what you should say. Now he's teaching us all the time. Every time we open the Bible, he's doing it. I believe he's teaching us right now. He is actively at work through, amazingly, the preaching of his word through the preacher preaching and the listener listening. The Bible promises us that. He's the only one that can give these words some kind of activity and efficacy and effectiveness in any one of our lives. 
And all the while, though we may not see the relevance at every point, he's sowing seeds that may, for some reason, lie dormant for a while, but when the right time comes, like in the barber shop, aha, the Holy Spirit has taught me this. No, you might not say that out loud, but you might say, because then other questions come. But you'll know what to say. But the promise from Jesus is actually much more intensely real than even that. Oh, that's true. But he's saying he will teach you at that time what you should say. In those moments, there are more than just two of you there. And his promise is there are more than just human beings interacting in that moment. There are more than just human beings interacting in that barber shop when that barber asks me that question. So I'm remembering not just the theology of what God can say about me on that day, what God can do to me on that day. I'm remembering who is with me on this day. And I'm fearing God, Lord willing, not man. How glorious that Jesus not only incentivizes us to speak by helping us see how irrational and ludicrous, like the moth fear, it is to fear man more than God, he helps us by giving us his spirit. So make no mistake, brothers and sisters, this fear of man, it's especially potent at controlling our behavior, particularly effective at frustrating the mission that Jesus has given us. We need to be aware of it, especially in light of the fierceness of some opposition that we might find. But we must see what Jesus wants us to see, that it's irrational, and if I may use the word again, ludicrous. Fear God, not man. And may Psalm 118 verse six indeed be our own. The Lord is for me, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's bow our heads for a second. Why don't you, in the quietness of your own prayers, uh, confess any fears you may have and ask God for our knowledge of him to help your fear of him and then we'll stand to sing in a few moments.